Hi and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature Podcast with me, Chris Jordan. Today I'm speaking with Head of School Improvement at Raha International School, Lucy Willis. Lucy has worked in London, Japan and now Abu Dhabi, serving a whole host of roles that support students and teachers alike. In the interview, we discuss a brief introduction to her teaching career and what recently led her to the UAE, what the post Head of School Improvement entails and what a day in Lucy's shoes looks like or feels like, examples of strategies she has tried to implement within the school and their levels of success, whether improvement can actually be gauged after an intervention has been rolled out, the government inspection teachers can expect in Abu Dhabi and what the work-life balance is like in Abu Dhabi compared to previous places Lucy has lived. Thanks again to Lucy for sparing some time to discuss her new role and I hope that all goes well for Raha, Abu Dhabi and the Emiratis working through their lockdown. Please be sure to subscribe to the show via your favourite podcast provider, give a rating, write a review or simply stay up to date with each new episode. Okay, Lucy, uh, would you mind giving us a brief introduction to your teaching career and what ultimately led you to the UAE? Sure. So um, my name is Lucy Willis. I'm in my, I worked out next year will be my 25th year in teaching and education, um, which seems incredible. I don't feel like I can have spent 25 years doing this, but I'm also really grateful that I got to being a job that allows me to change and experience so many different things. So it started um, right back in 1997 down in Sussex where I did my training and I started out as a secondary English teacher and I worked down in different schools in Sussex teaching English and one year over in Spain in an international school also teaching English round about I think for about the first six or seven years of my career and then at that point I was getting a bit itchy feet I didn't want to do something different and I made a move then into becoming a special educational needs teacher mm. from that I started running a small kind of behavior unit that we had within the secondary school called the bridge the idea was it was a bridge between not being at school and being at school so I did that for about two years and then I became a senko in the secondary school in Brighton uh, and run the special needs department for six years there. And at that point, the itchy feet came back and I uh, started looking for jobs overseas. And I took on a role in Brazil, in Sao Paulo, in an international school to set up, kind of bring together at that point, a lot of international schools would have some special needs support, some English language support maybe some counselling, but it was all quite separate. And so that was yeah. one of the first schools where they tasked me with bringing things together. And so that's what I did for two years at that school. Um, after that, I moved from Brazil to Japan, which is a very big contrast, cultural contrast, but doing a similar kind of thing, bringing together some pieces of work that were happening in the school around special needs, uh, ELL support, some counselling. Um, I stayed at that school for six years and in that time I was promoted eventually to whole school principal for well-being mm. um, and so I'd been working all those schools in overseas had been working whole school from 
four years old up to 18. So I then started to develop my knowledge around primary and early years teaching. Uh, after I was the whole school principal for wellbeing, which was a wonderful job in the school in Nagoya, Japan, which I love very much. Um, you know, family things are happening back in the UK. So I took a year back in London in another international school, the Dwight School in London, and was a classroom teacher for a year teaching English in the MYP. And it was amazing. It was such a good experience to go back oh. and be a teacher again after being a leader for quite a long time. Um, but yeah, again, I suppose it, those feet never stop itching. And I, um, <laughs> I did, did a, um, I'm a CIS evaluator and I was on a team with someone from the school here in Abu Dhabi and we got on, we worked together on the CIS evaluation for a school in Hong Kong, actually, which is where ah. you are. Um, this is a very long story, isn't it? But uh, through meeting her, I then, she sort of recommended me for a job here and I met with the school here and interviewed with them. And I was very interested in the role here, which is called the head of school improvement. And one of the things that they told me about the role was that they had removed the previous post of head of inclusion. And what they wanted to do, which is something I'm also quite passionate about, is to include inclusion within how we are a really good school and how we you know, provide high quality teaching and learning to the students. So it's really embedded in what you do and less separate. I mean, that is a journey and it's a dif it's difficult and there's a way to go before I think any school can do that really effectively. But I was very interested in the idea of how we can develop that idea of integrating support for students more, more effectively into what we offered in terms of teaching and learning. So that's where I've ended up here in the middle of a yeah. pandemic, moving to a new school with a task with supporting teaching and learning to teachers who are in survival mode oh, yeah. and really don't have much energy beyond just getting through each day. So that's been a very interesting, humbling experience, but wonderful too. So that's kind of taken me to where I am now. Well, what does improvement, so inclusion is included in like head of improvement. What else? I imagine improvement kind of differs on in terms of definition or what that entails depending on the the place or even the school you're in but what's your remit as head of school improvement what do you have to focus on and what does a typical day or week look like mm, there is no typical day or week <laughs> really good about it um it's been yeah again it's been interesting there was already one head of school improvement and the school I'm in now Raha International School is a big international school and we're in the process of opening a second campus. So it's about 3,000 students altogether, a lot of teachers. And so he needed some support to manage the role beyond what he could do. I think initially the head of school improvement at Raha was, was uh, around inspection and evaluation. So managing the processes of self-study. Mm. Um, and a big part of that is also managing data and gathering and processing data. Um, to monitor the effectiveness of what the school was doing. Um, so it grew from that. From that, I think the role started to encompass a kind of role uh, looking at supporting the processes of monitoring teachers, so the professional growth and appraisal processes, um, looking at the other aspects of teaching and learning, what sort of standards we have in the school in terms of quality, um so really just whatever's needed 
So at the moment, the, since I've been here, I guess the main pieces of work that I've been doing have been myself and my colleague, Nick, who's the other head of school improvement, have worked on creating a set of teaching and learning standards for the school. So they're based off our kind of school mission and vision, mm. our, what we think call it high quality teaching and learning looks like, and then really trying to define that for our teaching staff um, and then delivering some training on that to help people understand what it looks like. Um, so that, I think, has been an important step in starting to work with the teachers and the leaders in the school to say, what is it that we're trying, you know, what does improvement look like? What are we aiming for in terms of improving and where are we trying to go? Because if you don't know, it's very hard to get there. Um, one of the standards is based around something called the universal design for learning. I don't know if you've come across that, which is a kind of a, a, a framework for looking at differentiation, something that I've, again, I feel really strongly and passionately about is an excellent tool. So I've developed this, I've been doing some training with all the staff across the school on that and looking at how we can embed it into what we're doing. So we've this term in secondary, we're basing all of our lesson visits around the UDL model and trying to have a really focused uh, lesson visit, lesson observation process where people are working on look, improving that aspect of their practice in particular. Um, a lot of this year has been about opening the second campus and working together with the leaders from both campuses on on how we have a kind of a one vision that's what we call it how can we be mm. one school with two quite big separate campuses and there's there's a lot of complications around that um, that have been useful to work on I'm doing quite a lot of coaching so I coach various different middle leaders in the school um, to give support to them so I feel like the the job's kind of building it's what does needs to be improved I guess you look for the gap and then you find what you can do to support where it's needed um, and I'm still learning I think what the job's going to be uh, yeah. long term I suppose improvement's never done by definition I guess so that's yeah that's both kind of an ambitious way to look at it and also quite a sort of um, something that'll keep you busy with with well-being or with um with improvement, these things that you've had experience in, whether it's in like the UAE or outside the UAE, it, it, it always kind of fills me with a bit of dread. Like for, for someone who works in like, let's say, a, in a senior leadership role for teaching and learning, let's say, it seems a lot easier to rely on data or, you know, summative assessments and this kind of thing. Not to say that that's the only um, aspect of school life that they draw upon. But how do you gauge whether the improvement that you and your colleague are trying to map out is actually occurring or how in like Nagoya or any other school, how do you know that the well-being has actually significantly increased in, in your experience? How do you gauge that? Yeah, well-being, having that title of um, <laughs> school principal for well-being, that was kind of a poison chalice sometime. I remember yeah. people sort of bursting in my office and going, Lucy, you're in charge of well-being, aren't you? Well, I'm having a bad day today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did have a I did have a sofa in my office. I called it the emotion sofa and you could cry or <laughs> or be happy on there, but wherever mm. you need it. I, I do think that's an interesting question. And even when I was working back, uh, you know, 12 years ago when I was a Senko, I remember people say, you know, thinking about how do we know what we're doing is having impact? And I think I realised then that I couldn't see the impact of a lot of that work immediately. You're right. It's not going to have 
a, a noticeable effect immediately maybe on someone's attainment that's measurable in the same way that it could be that if you put a new instructional strategy in or you change the yeah. way that you assess something you're going to see impact things that impact student well-being or teacher well-being are not necessarily going to show something concrete immediately the benefit of being a teacher for 25 years I think is that I can see students that I used to teach and I can see the impact long term mm. on things that we did back when they were still at school and I'm in touch with some students and I, and I see that but that's quite nebulous and we're in education we often want to see things I'm doing the MPQH at the moment there's the UK head teachers qualification and they want you to have mm. a two-term project which has data that shows impact over two terms and you know in some ways that's really unrealistic I feel like and um yeah. ends up with people kind of util you know we if you work a lot with data you know that data is malleable it's not fixed yeah. you know it's movable it, it gives you you can use it to show things so I guess in terms of impact measuring impact is difficult isn't it it's very difficult mm. um to have a definitive answer on have are things getting better you know sometimes I th you think what do parents want for their children at school they want them to feel happy and they want them to feel safe mm. do we measure that impact do they they want them I read a great article recently actually that talked about maybe the one thing that we should measure schools on is do they pr give the students choices in their life yeah. Oh, we give them the ability to make choices. And that might be the one thing that we should be trying to do. And I thought that was a really useful way to look at things. There's um I, I remember reading something a while ago as part of a course I was doing, and it was it was saying about how that you you could try and approach sort of like you know pupils in terms of questionnaires or surveys and it kind of struck me as but even that is something which is relatively malleable in terms of if you give them a survey in the first term and they they understand what it's for and in the second term they're almost tacitly expected and they can feel that they're expected to say well things have got better haven't they because we've spent all this money and you know we've been I feel like it's even that you you can get data that isn't necessarily kind of like valid or reliable and yeah it's that it, it adds another layer of kind of complexity or challenge as opposed to your role but um um yeah with, with regard to Abu Dhabi specifically or the UAE mm -hmm. um what kind of inspection what kind of um inspection framework is in place in the UAE or more specifically Abu Dhabi. I'm not sure if there's a different a difference between the different Emirates um, that you you and the school have to um, sort of live up to. How does that affect your role? Yeah, very much so. And you know, I'm still learning about the detail of it. But yes, there are different educational bodies that do inspections in different Emirates. So the one in Dubai is different to the one. In Abu Dhabi. So in Abu Dhabi, it's called ADEC, and they have an inspection framework with a set of standards. Um, things have been very disrupted because of the pandemic, but I think my understanding was every two years, schools were inspected against these standards and they were expected to have a self study. It has a very um, strong focus on attainment and progress data. So it is a very data driven kind of framework. Um, and even though all those things I said about data being malleable, I'm still very interested and think data is incredibly useful. Mm. I don't want to, you know, it's not that I don't value it, I do. 
but I value it as a, a, a multiple pieces of a puzzle rather than yeah. ever giving you one definitive answer. So yes, for ADEC, there is a framework. In general, it seems to be based off maybe some ideas from Ofsted. I actually did some training with the company that do the inspections for ADEC so that I could, un, you know, so I could be a, an inspector for them and so that I could understand kind of how the framework works. Uh, it has a really good, robust self-study process, self-evaluation process, which we're just going through again at the moment as a school. And we do find that it's a valuable process to, to give us a structure by which we can look at various aspects of the school and how well they're working. Mm. Um, yeah, the, the, to measure attainment and progress is, is challenging, you know. So I mm. recognise why it is a big part of the framework and why we want to look at in terms of value that schools are giving to the students that are there and the families that choose them. We want to look at those outcomes. Mm. Um, but I do think there's always a little tension between what I think is really good practice and then putting data on top of that. So yeah. just being careful with how I say it, I, I know there's value to it, but I think it's complex to navigate and to balance, you know, what you want to do and what you need to do to ensure that, that we, you know, we're doing, we our data is what it needs to be. Yeah. What's that old adage? Um, not everything that's measurable is meaningful and not everything that's meaningful is measurable. I probably got that the wrong way around, but I mean, yeah, are, are the, are the attitudes to the, the inspectorate in the Emirates in any way comparable to the attitudes that some, or maybe most, I don't know, teachers in the UK have towards Ofsted or is it a different relationship? I think one of the things that's interesting about working in an international school is that every you've got people coming from many different kind of national systems. Mm. And I think everybody brings an experience from them to the international school. So people that have lived through Ofsted bring that expectation that it's an Ofsted kind of feeling. If you haven't and you've come from a different kind of national inspection, you might feel differently about it. So I don't think there's like one way of looking at ADEX inspections in particular. I just think people bring expectations of what inspection means to them, mm. to the school with them. And we've just done some training with quite a lot of staff at the school about doing the self-study. And we what we try to emphasize is there is a benefit to this process, no matter what you think about inspection, no matter what your opinion is on the framework, whether you think it's a useful framework or it doesn't match your personal education philosophy, there's a benefit to a process of self-evaluation against a set of external standards, as long as you can have a kind of balanced view to it. Mm. I think my, it's funny you say that, actually, I've never thought about this before, but um, I work with my wife currently and technically, she will she will stress the word technically I'm her boss. Um, and whenever I observe her, she, she she almost talks about it as if it is like something which she obviously will not obviously, but she trained in the UK as a teacher. And yeah, her reaction to it is very different to like American colleagues or South African colleagues. So that's yeah, that's that's perhaps why that was. Um, my my last question is like the, the Emirates or the UAE, Abu Dhabi. Um, I heard or I read a study recently which was saying that almost the the, the amount of 
teachers who speak English uh, as a medium of, of delivery. So whether it's an English teacher or geography teacher, whatever, it's going to almost double in the next 20, 30 years. And I think generally that's down to the Middle East um, or China. What's um, I know Abu Dhabi is not necessarily representative of everywhere in, in the Emirates or the Middle East, but what um, what's your work-life balance like in Abu Dhabi compared to, you know, Japan or um, the UK or the, the the place in Spain where you've worked before? I know you have probably haven't had a full kind of experience of it, what with COVID, but how would you describe the work-life balance for anyone who's interested in moving to the Middle East? It is really, really hard for me to answer that question <laughs> at the moment because it's just been such an unusual year. Yeah. Um, I would guess that it will be, I, I mean, work-life balance, I think, isn't contextual. It's individual. It's about um, mm. your own, you know, way that you manage your work. I think it's, in my experience, anyway, that I've worked in maybe 10 schools. It's not usually been this pressure from the school. It's been pressure I've put on myself in terms of workload. So I think in Abu Dhabi, if you were thinking about moving here to teach, it's a beautiful climate. It's a really nice lifestyle that you can have. My school in particular, I think, is incredibly supportive and thoughtful about people's work-life balance. But I'm sure there are teachers that work there that feel that their work-life balance isn't what they'd want it to be. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> I also, I mean, yeah, I've got my own strategies for managing my work-life balance. I, I do try to do all my work at work. And if that yeah. means I work in the days, I'll work all the days. But um, working from home a lot more this year has changed that, you know. So now I'm more comfortable work, doing work at home because I've had to have all weeks yeah. and months at home. I think, yeah, that's it's quite a nice way of putting it actually that it is individual to the person. Um, I'm sure there's people who sort of work in the same staff room as me who, you know, we work in the same place, walk about on the same bit of carpet every day, but our attitudes are completely different. And I suppose if you've got a family or you're single and that kind of thing, then that also affects it as well. But yeah. Okay. Um, only thing that remains for me to say really is thanks a lot for giving up your time today uh i'm sure you've got plenty to deal with with um the heads of improvement um <laughs> responsibility um as as you explained before so thanks a lot for giving up your time and your insights about your uh work a day week lucy no problem thank you so much for inviting me to talk to you <laughs>